Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Dublin Story Slam podcast. My name is Julian Clancy and I am the producer of the Dublin Story Slam. So this is part one of a two-part special featuring highlights from the Dublin Story Grand Slam Championship, which took place in the Abbey Theatre, which, as everyone knows, is Ireland's national theatre and was an incredible place. We had a full house, nearly 500 people uh, in the audience and all there for one reason, and that was to hear amazing stories. Colm O'Regan is our host. He's going to introduce each one of the storytellers. So for now, all I want you to do is to sit back. I want you to close your eyes. If you're driving or operating heavy machinery, probably not the latter. But either way, I want you to pretend that you're here in Dublin, in Ireland, and you're seeing Colm O'Regan come out on stage in possibly the most dapper suit I've ever seen Colm wear. So here is Colm O'Regan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you like the suit? Yeah. As, as Ariana Grande might say, thank you. Next. Uh, that's exclusively a joke for people on Twitter. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, it is an absolute honor to be back here at the Abbey for this. This is, this is historic. It's, you know, I feel like the weight of history is on our shoulders here. This historic venue. We are absolutely honoured to be given this stage to tell these great stories on the theme of the good, uh, the bad and the ugly. They are, uh, have to be true, they have to be about the person who's telling the story or the person who's telling the story has to be somehow involved. And we have a kind of time limit, so they are between four and seven minutes long. And then just to show you how the timing works, what's our four minute uh, chord there? Very good, that's nice, isn't it? It's like the end of of a long Beatles song. Uh, that's, that's, which one was that again? What was one ends like that? Day in the life, was it? Anyway, uh, so that's the first one. So at six minutes. Okay, a bit of hope. Yeah, yeah, a bit of... <laughs> the, the, it's the, the note played between act two and act three in a rom-com. Uh, and then the final one. Oh, very good. The first sign of rain on a summer's day uh, with a rainbow. Yeah, that's how it works. So those are... those. That's the rough, that's a guide for our storytellers. Our storytellers are all champs and they're, they're, they know the flow. But it's just to give you an idea, when you hear those notes, it's not an amazing ringtone. It came from over there, okay? So ladies and gentlemen, our first storyteller of the Dublin Story Grand Slam is John Piggott, ladies and gentlemen, round of applause, John Piggott. No, I can't really remember what the argument was about, and it doesn't matter because 
The argument in these situations is never about what the argument is about. What was remarkable about the argument wasn't just how quickly it escalated and how intense it got. What was really remarkable about it was me and my girlfriend had really never argued before. We'd been going out for five years and we had never had an argument like this. Yet here I was, the night hardly started, storming out of the bar, leaving her and all my friends behind, getting in my car and burning off home, which was about a mile away. And when I got home, <coughs> I, I got out of the car, but I didn't go into the house. It was a really nice evening at the end of a really nice day, really like this one. And there was a moon, and the moon had an aura around it, and the aura was, it was like a sort of a washed out rainbow, and the stars were out. And if you think about it, it's really quite a really spectacular thing. It's like we're riding around the cosmos in this spaceship that we call Earth. And every now and again, they put the top down. And you can actually see what's going on. I mean, it's like you lived all your life in a ship, but you lived below decks all your life. And you only ever saw what was going on outside through the portholes a little bit sometimes. And then somebody one day dragged you up on deck and showed you what was going on and you just go, fuck. And you know, that sort of stuff, like it's intimidating. Okay, so there was, there was another thing that night, there was a noise, there was a noise and the only way I can describe it was like a, a swarm of bees. And it was getting, it was far away, but it was getting closer. And at this stage, the movie producer would do something artistic and we'd go back in time and start at the very beginning. I met this, I met my wife when she was 14 and I was 16. And we went out for two weeks and she dumped me. So I went off and I fell in love with somebody else and she dumped me too, very politely. And I, I, w I was devastated. But I fell in love again and she dumped me. So now I was not just devastated, I was angsty. And I was really careful about the next one and I, I didn't do the fall in love thing and I kept her at a distance. And I, she dumped me brutally. I mean, she dumped me in a supermarket in front of a friend and they giggled. So now I was like angry. I was angry. And I decided to wage war on women. And that worked amazingly well. You know, really? I, I, I things started coming together as long as, you know, I looked out for the signs and dumped them first. That, that worked. And I don't say the L word, you don't know I love you out. So for, for, for years, like, that, that kept me going. And then, so five years later, I bumped into the first one again, Jerry. And we started getting going out, and as soon as we started going out, I started getting ready to dump her. But things were going really good. It was really easy, and it was difficult to dump her. I was that one I was thinking, you know, you've got to dump this girl. It's got to go, it's got to go. I'm just dumping her. And she turned around and she said, are you thinking of breaking it off with me? I said, no. 
She says, you are, you're thinking of breaking it off. And he says, no, I'm not. She says, look, what's in your mind? It's all over your face. Talk to me. You need to talk to me. And I did. You know, I talked to her, not the dumping thing. <laughs> no, I'm dumping you. I, I, I talked to her about everything. And she listened, and it was cool, and it was one of the most liberating things uh, that ever happened to me. So we had great sex, and then I left to walk home, and the stars were out. And I knew she was the one. So now the, the editor is going to take us back to where I'm standing in the street listening to this herd of bees coming and not knowing what it is. As it gets nearer and nearer, it becomes a roar. And the roar turns into my street, and the roar is the wreck of my girlfriend's lovely little Mazda 323. And it's at least a foot shorter than the manufacturer's specifications. And the bonnet is, is folded like uh, a welcome card at a wedding. And the wheels, the wings are pressed so hard onto the tires that the tires are actually smoking. And the burst radiator is steaming. And the rainbow-colored aller around the moon, that's ice crystals, apparently. And in trying to chase me down, she had spun the car and done a flat spin along a stone wall and totally destroyed. I mean, the car looked like something had been dragged through hell. And if it, it was unrecognizable, she was almost as unrecognizable. Her face was like a mask of fury. And she, she lifted her foot off the accelerator, which was the only thing that was dragging that car along. And it stopped and it never moved again. And she kicked her way out of the car. And she came up to me and she hit me such a box, she really decked me. And she talked to me, she screamed at me in decibels that only a dolphin could hear. And she asked me, what the fuck are you doing? And the thing is, it took her five minutes to work out what I was about. But it took me five years to get to her. And we've been married for 34 years. And this is the biggest stage I will ever stand on. And it's a great place to tell her how much I love her, and always will. Oh, I feel like everybody should give everybody a hug now. Uh, that was beautiful. Thank you very much, uh, John Piggott. So uh, we will go to our next storyteller. Uh, and will you give a huge round of applause, ladies and gentlemen, to Kerry Ward. Kerry Ward, welcome Kerry to the stage. Hi, Kerry. In 2013, I was a contestant on Irish MasterChef, and it was one of the best and worst experiences of my entire life. Um, I have loved cooking since I was really young. One of my earliest memories is of standing on a kitchen chair in my nanny's kitchen and helping her make raspberry tarts and just feeling really warm and content and just happy. Now, I always loved food, but I didn't always have an easy relationship with food because I was overweight as a child and I was bullied relentlessly through primary school for being the fat kid. 
and you know the nerdy kid and the tall kid and the asthmatic kid because you know children are monsters. Um, so that wasn't enough. Even though that knocked my confidence, it never made me come away from food because no matter what was going on in my life, and this is true today, cooking, sharing food with people I love, like that always just brings me back to that same warm, content, happy place. So in 2013, I had just graduated from college and I honestly didn't know what I was gonna do with my life, but I was spending a lot of time in the kitchen. When the MasterChef applications opened, I kind of looked at it and I thought, you know, sure, why not? And I applied without really ever expecting anything to happen. And a week later, I got a call to say that I was through to the first audition. And really, it all went downhill from there. So for the first audition, I had to answer a bunch of questions over the phone. And the first question was, what do you make that you would consider to be high cuisine? Now, I was 22. I had never even eaten high cuisine. So I just started making shit up. Like, I just started naming dishes I had heard of. And I discovered that if you put the word deconstructed in front of any restaurant dish, people think you know what you're talking about. So I should have been knocked out then, Instead, I was invited to the second round of auditions. For the second audition, I had to make a cold dish and bring it to the audition venue where the producer ate it, asked me a lot of questions, and filmed me at the same time. Now, I made a bay leaf panna cotta with Turkish spice figs. It was beautiful. Nobody can take that away from me. But on the way to the audition, it melted. So by the time I actually got there, it was just a puddle of cream. I really should have been knocked out then, but I got through to the final audition. For the final audition, I had to live cook in front of a team of camera people. I had never cooked on gas before, and while I was heating a huge vat of oil for my tempura, I set an entire roll of kitchen paper on fire. <laughs> Someone should have sent me home. Instead, I got a call to say, congratulations, you are going to be on MasterChef. So I arrived on the first day of filming at 6 a.m., sick with nerves, but really excited to get in there and start cooking. Little did I know that it would be a while because filming a single 30-minute episode of MasterChef takes 13 hours. It was six hours before I even set eyes on the judges, and that was six hours of putting my apron on, taking my apron off, walking into the kitchen, walking out of the kitchen, giving endless interviews. So six hours in, I found out what I was going to be making and we were all going to be making our signature dish. My signature dish, salt caramel profiteroles, dark chocolate ganache, rosemary honeycomb, roasted pistachio creme anglaise. A dish I had never successfully made in the time limit. I had one hour. It started fine. It started fine, my profiteroles rose beautifully, my caramel was perfect, but it was the most distracting environment ever. There was literally a guy on a seven foot ladder in front of me, pointing a camera down at me. To my left, one of the girls was cooking with a live lobster and the camera crew were like obsessed with this. They kept poking it to make it do stuff. <laughs> she, when she tried to boil it, it jumped out of the pot. So I was there going, okay, okay, just pay attention, pay attention, and I got distracted. I looked away from my creme anglaise for two seconds, and bam, it was scrambled egg. At this point, I was running out of time. I had to fill my profiteroles, but they were still warm. Has anyone ever watched Bake Off? Do you know what happens when you do that? All of my filling split. At this point, I realized I was kind of in over my head. <laughs> 
But I had smiled all day, I had smiled through the whole process, and I kept smiling as I brought my dish up to the judges. And they looked at me, and they looked at each other, and they said, we will not be tasting that. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you. And I brought my dish back to my bench. I thought, you know what, at least that's the worst of it over. But the producer cut filming. She said, no. If you are going not to taste her dish, you have to give her an explicit reason. And one of the judges looked at me, and he said, hasn't the poor girl suffered enough? <laughs> and that absolutely broke me. It broke me. I had gotten through that whole day. I brought my dish up again. I had it rejected a second time, and I burst into tears. And the worst part was that all of the crying made it into the final episode. <laughs> the rest of the day is, is a bit of a blur. I don't need to tell you that I was eliminated. <laughs> that was it. My MasterChef journey was over after one episode. And I have to tell you, I was young, and as I walked out of there, I felt absolutely crushed. Like, I felt like a failure. And it brought me back to that feeling of being a child in school and just burning up with shame and embarrassment and really feeling like I just wasn't good enough. And then I went and I got the bus home and while I was on my way home, I was struck by this thought and it was so powerful that it has stayed with me to this day. And that thought very simply was, I have some balls. <laughs> walked in there, half the experience, half the age of all those other people, and with no fear, no reservations, no self-doubt, not knowing what I was doing, I gave it my all. And I can walk away from that with my head held high. And to this day, no job interview, no presentation, no story slam has ever made me feel like I couldn't do it. Because if I could do MasterChef, I can do anything. And I want to leave you with this, because two years after my episode aired, when honestly MasterChef was just an anecdote that I told people at parties, um, I got contacted by a magazine who were doing a piece on previous MasterChef contestants, and they wanted me to give an interview. <laughs> and a lot of the other interviews were about how successful the contestants had gone on to be and how they'd opened their own restaurants. Mine was not like that. <laughs> but I wanted to leave you with my last line of the interview, which for me really sums up the entire experience. And that is, my food is not beautiful. It is not professional. It is not high cuisine. But it is made with love and care. And for me, that is what cooking is really about. Thank you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That was great. Kerry Ward, ladies and gentlemen. That was great. Thank you very much, Kerry. Now we will uh, have our next storyteller up. Will you give a huge welcome to Claire Nevin? Welcome, Claire Nevin, to the stage. So I just moved to Strasbourg for work, and early on, one night, I found myself out salsa dancing. And that's where I met Raphael. He came over, he asked me to dance. A few dances later, we were talking. And it was the usual stuff, you know, the, where are you from? What do you do? And uh, he sent me a message, and then we went out for a few dates. And a few weeks later, I was with some friends down in the Irish pub, and I was just dying to tell them about this guy I've met. Um, so I worked up a bit of Dutch courage and said, guys, you know, I've met this guy. He is fantastic. I said, yeah, you know, only 30 years of age. And then I had another pint, and I, I lied. I felt bad about it. So I said, you know, guys, he's, he's actually he's 35. And then the alcohol started working like a truth serum. So by the next one, I said, he's 40, all right, he's 40. <laughs> I was like I was playing some sort of Benjamin Button team drinking game in reverse. And every pint I drank, he got older. So I stopped anyway there, and he, he, he was 40. That's it. <laughs> Um, and that's where things about this relationship were a little bit, you know, less straightforward. Uh, he was divorced, he had a teenage son, and for a 24-year-old at the time, that was a lot to take in. But I said, you know, everybody has their life experience, life is not straightforward. If you get on with somebody, give it a chance. I decided I'd be mature about all of this. Um, but as time went on, there were cracks, um, and this started to become apparent when I brought him home to meet my family in Ireland. And afterwards, my parents said to me, you know, you're not yourself around this guy. You were trying way too hard to please him. You are a nervous wreck. You have no confidence. And you're on tenterhooks the whole time we can see it. And I'd been kidding myself for the first while of this relationship, saying, teething problems. Um, you know, he's older than you, so he's had more life experience. He knows the way he likes things, doesn't like them. And so it's going to take us just longer than your average couple to find our rhythm in the relationship. Um, but actually, I had things to think about then when I got back from Ireland, and I was lying to myself that I was not in a controlling relationship, it was just teething problems, but I was making myself smaller and smaller in the relationship because, 
you know, the smaller I was and the less space I took up, the less problems there were, because everything had a fault in it. There was no pleasing this man whatsoever. And when we got back from Ireland, I had some time to think, and I was grateful for it because he was away for work. He was abroad. And so I came home to my apartment after work one evening, delighted to have the evening to myself. And I took off my coat and threw it on the bed. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw this little white shiny thing wriggling on the bed. And I looked down and said, oh, I cycled through a forest on the way home. I must have just taken in a little bug on my, on my coat and threw it down on the bed. But then I looked on the floor and there were more of them. And then I walked over and round the room and then I saw on the windowsill there were piles, like hundreds, wriggling all over each other. Uh, my room was infested with maggots. But I'd just been back from Ireland, so I said, my mother's after putting a ham sandwich into my bag for the plane. <laughs> and I haven't found it. <laughs> so I tried to find a ham sandwich. And I called a neighbour of mine, an elderly woman, who looked after us all and kept an eye on us for the landlord. I said, will you come down and help me find this ham sandwich, please? And so she came down and we looked around the room and then she stopped and she went, oh my God, Mr. Bichel, he hasn't been well now. He said he probably would be the next person to die in the building. And his post box hasn't been emptied for a month. But try thought he was on his holidays. OK, I said, that's enough. We need to call the police. So the police came over and they thought we were just crazy at the start. Um, didn't want to listen to our macabre story. But we insisted that they break in upstairs and tell us what was going on. And so the police did eventually go up and then you had three or four big burly French policemen running down the stairs, horrified, you know, cloths over their mouths and pale in the face. And I said, so? And I said, oh, you were right. I didn't want to know, but I had to ask. I said, how long has he been there for? He said, at least a month. And I just had to get out of there. It was so sad. Um, but there had been a smell, and I'd noticed this over the past few weeks, but I'd never thought it could be something like this. Never thought that it could be that. And so at that stage, I really missed my boyfriend, and I wished he was in Strasbourg to help me. And so I could go to his place and just get out of there. And I called him, I said, is there anyone who can give me a spare pair of keys? I have to leave, I have to get over there, I can't stay in my place. And thankfully there was, so I got the spare pair of keys. And I went over to his house and I let myself in. Had just a long, hot shower, poured myself a glass of whiskey. I got into bed. I said, I'll read a book and that'll help me relax because usually that helps me relax. So I pulled one down off the shelf but I couldn't read, like, my head was so frazzled, I couldn't focus on the words, they weren't coming together. And I remembered he liked sketching, and he'd normally keep a sketchbook near the bed. I said, that's what I'll do. I'll look at his sketchbook, and that'll help me just kind of calm down and relax. And so there I picked it up anyway, and I opened it. And I thought I was disgusted before, but what I opened wasn't a sketchbook, it was a diary. And I opened it on a page where I saw my name. And don't judge me, because any one of you would have done the same. <laughs> any one of you would have read it, OK? <laughs> so I read it, of course. And what I found out was that in this page, he'd said that he did not love me, um, didn't care about me very much at all, really. And if his ex-girlfriend came back, he wouldn't hesitate to drop me in a minute. 
And because I'd been fooling myself in this relationship for so long and ignoring the signs, everything, blaming them on this, find an excuse for that, I had to keep reading because I had to finally figure out what this relationship was and what I had been refusing and ignoring to see. And mostly the book and this diary was about his relationships and his, the women in his life, and there was a pattern to this. They were, without fail, all much, much younger women um, who he would try to mould and shape to be the type of person that he wanted to be with, which was usually a very controlled and very subservient woman, and no woman ever fit the bill. You know, the absolute hatred for women in this book was shocking, and the narcissism. And, you know, when the women wouldn't be controlled or they were ungrateful women as he would see them, he would, as always, without fail, cheat and move on to the next victim. And so I was the latest line in this series of much younger women. And it all made sense to me then. Everything came together and I closed that book. First thing next morning, I left that apartment, put the keys in the letterbox, sent a text message, said, never, ever contact me again. And, you know, that was a really, really strange night to have all of that come together in the one night. But at the end of it, really, despite everything that happened, it was the relationship which I had been fooling myself into thinking was good for me actually was the ugliest thing of all. Claire Nevin, ladies and gentlemen, wow, uh, that is, that was like a, almost a Coen Brothers style twist and that is incredible. Our final storyteller of the first half, will you give a huge welcome to Gary Maloney. Gary Maloney. So it's almost two years to the day that I first moved up to Dublin to become a lawyer and that, I know that doesn't sound exciting to most of you out there because as a child, when your junior infants teacher asks you what you want to be when you grow up, most people don't turn around and say, I'm actually really into mergers and acquisitions. And uh, neither was I, so that's fine. But I, I was always interested in like, a different aspect of the law. The law meant something really different to me. I wanted to become a lawyer because I wanted to help people. And I know that sounds cliche and I know it sounds trite, but it's true. You see, I grew up in a household where the kind of unspoken philosophy that guided us all was just try to do more good than harm in your life. I have a very distinct memory of being very small and my parents sitting me down and saying, look, all you can do in your life is try and make this little patch of the world that you're in some bit better. And that always stuck with me. And I, for years, tried to figure out, well, what was I going to do with my life? I knew I wanted to help people because I knew if I didn't do it, then maybe people wouldn't do it. And so it had to be me. And so over the years, it turned out I could be a bit of a contrarian. It turned out that I had an awful habit of talking absolute crap, as you may not have noticed. Uh, and so the law seemed like a natural fit for someone like that. And what, what I liked about the law the most, though, was like its potential to be a tool for social change. Because the, most, the greatest privilege you have as an advocate is to be the voice for someone who can't speak for themselves. To be able to stand up in a court and say, there has been an injustice done here and it demands an answer. And so I started off, I went to college in UCC, I didn't go too far from home. And eventually, but I always knew that I'd have to move to Dublin on a base, near permanent basis if I ever wanted to qualify as a barrister and qualify as a lawyer. And so after a while, I got the opportunity. I, a job offer came up in an area of 
that compassionate side of the law that I was really, really interested in being a part of. And it was one that would have given me the opportunity to qualify as a barrister as well. So it was perfect, but it came with the one bit of caveat in that I had to start in two weeks. It was the middle of November, and the housing market was in an absolute state. Crap. So those first two weeks while I was waiting to start up, they weren't fun. They were daily trolling through daft.ie looking for something somewhat resembling reasonable accommodation and daily excursions on the air coach. And it's a sad day in your life when you realize you're on first name terms with the guy from the air coach. And there was viewings every day and they were really, really positive. And I came away from each and every one saying, yeah, you know, this is great. You know, that, that's a nice place. I could live there. That could be my home. And as I'm waiting for the air coach, get the inevitable text message, oh, sorry, the house is gone. Uh, we've gone with someone else. And that takes its toll. And Dublin, which had become this embodiment of my dream of being a lawyer, uh, it started to become tainted. The gloss started to be chipped away. And the ugliness decided to reveal itself. And it's something that every city and, and every town has. But when you're from a place, you don't recognize it as easily. But as a stranger in Dublin, I did. And what depressed me most was, and it's probably my own situation that exacerbated it, was I just saw the amount of homeless around Dublin City. People who were living every night on the streets without so much as a blanket to cover them. And it really got me down. And one man in particular always stood out to me in that he, he, met, he based himself off the top of Capel Street. Uh, he had an unkempt beard and he was always be uh, clutching a wooden crucifix. And he'd never speak, he'd never talk, he'd just give you a nod as you walked past. And I saw him every day as I was going back and forth uh, to the air coach in various viewings. I remember one evening I saw him interacting with uh, local charity workers. And, you know, that should have boosted me. That should have bolstered me because, you know, there are people out there helping. But the problem is he was still there the next day and the day after that. It wasn't helping. And things weren't getting better. And things weren't getting better for me either. I spent the first two weeks of actually my job in Dublin, commuting from Port Leash, living off the kindness of relatives. I was up at 5 a.m. every morning to make sure I got into the office in time, and I'd be getting the last train back to make sure I got as many viewings in as possible. And again, rejection after rejection, the man on Capel Street, always there. And it took me a while to actually realize that the man on Capel Street, he was a representative of like the reason I wanted to become a lawyer, because no one was speaking for him. And if someone wasn't going to speak, in, speak for him and people like him, then I was damn well sure we were going to, going to do it. And so like, that kept me going through the harsh times. That kept me going through the tough uh, slog of trying to find a house in Dublin. And eventually I did. Uh, and I moved in with a great roommate who was another idealistic young lawyer who thought that they could make a difference in this world. And things have been going well. I've been working on trying to make this little patch of the world I'm in uh, as good as it can be in whatever way I can. And things have been going all right, things have been on track. Uh, I'm due to become a barrister in July of next year. Those, and I'm going to be able to work, I've been working in an area that has allowed me to help people and show the compassionate side of the law. And up until last Thursday, that would have been where the story ended. But it was after a long day of work that I came home and I wanted nothing more than to sit down with a cup of tea, and I did. But I picked up my post as I, as I, as I was walking in. And I sat down and I noticed a very auspicious looking brown envelope, so I, I opened it up and, oh, it was, a, it was an eviction notice. You've got to be out by January. The landlord's selling the gaff. And immediately I was transported back to November 2016, 
once again. Their viewings, their rejections, the man at the top of Capel Street. And things were, were bleak for a while. I was wondering how I was going to sort it all out because the market was even in an even worse state than it was back two years ago. And then I took up for a moment, I sat down, finished my cup of tea, and I realized that, that this is the life I wanted. That part of trying to help people, that that's not always going to be easy. And you're always going to come against an adversity like that. But all you can do is try to make your little patch of the world as best as it can be. And by doing that, the story doesn't end. You get to play a part in writing the next page and hope that the ending is somewhat better than the last. And as long as there are people willing to do that, then I think we're probably going to be okay in the end. Gurmeel Mahagwith. Thank you very much. That was Gary Maloney, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Gary. That is the end of the first half, ladies and gentlemen. So before you go into the interval, can you give a huge round of applause for our four storytellers, John Piggott, Kerry Ward, Claire Nevin, and Gary Maloney. So that was the first half of the Dublin Story Grand Slam Championship 2018 taking place there in the Abbey Theatre. We'll be back very shortly with the second half of the show. So make sure to check your feed. And if you want to find out who won, you can't wait. And maybe head on over to our Facebook page where you can see pictures of the night as well as some updates on our next Story Slam, which takes place on December the 18th as a special fundraiser for the Simon community. So check that out and uh, yeah, keep an eye on the old feed for part two of the Dublin Story Grand Slam Championship. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.